Before we get started today, I would like to share with you two studies that occurred in 1944 by Renee Spitz and in the 1960s by Harry Harlow. When we talk about sensory experiences, we talk about experiences where the senses are involved. So this means touch, sight, hearing, smell, and taste. Back in the 1940s, to figure out why sensory or social stimuli was important, Renee Spitz followed two groups of children from the time they were born until they were several years old. The first group were raised in an orphanage and were basically either cut off from human contact or had one single nurse caring for seven children. The second group were raised in a prison nursery where their mothers were incarcerated. The mothers were allowed to give their babies care and affection every day and the babies were able to see one another and the prison staff throughout the day. At age four months, the development of both groups were quite similar. But by the time the babies were one year old, the motor and intellectual performance of the orphanage children lagged badly behind those raised in the prison nursery. The orphanage babies were also less curious, less playful, and more subject to infections. When they were two and three years old, the children in the prison nursery walked and talked confidently, while out of the 26 orphanage children, only two could walk and manage a few words. It was made clear in this study how social interactions with other humans were essential for children's development. Fast forward to the 1960s, Harry Harlow decided to take the research further, this time with monkeys. Harlow took the monkeys just a few hours after their birth and raised them for three, six, or even 12 months in complete isolation from other monkeys, including their mothers. After their isolation, they were put back with other monkeys. And although physically healthy, it was clear that there was something incredibly wrong with their social behavior. They would huddle in corners of their cages and rock back and forth the way some autistic children do. They did not interact with other monkeys. They did not play with other monkeys or show any sex drive. However, when other monkeys were isolated for periods of time later on in life, it had practically no effect on their behavior. Now, although cruel and perhaps unethical, Harlow showed beyond any doubt in monkeys, as in humans, that there was a critical period for social development. In a time where we are dealing with a global pandemic that limits physical and social touch, this research becomes salient once again. How long would you last in a chamber of isolation? Welcome back to BrainCore, the podcast that introduces you to new psychology and neuroscience research. I'm Tolu Faramika, and I'm joined by my co-host, Christina Valcanis, today. So we are in October, and for the podcast, this means that we are focusing on developmental psychology and neuroscience. And today, we are going to be covering something that is actively affecting our daily lives, the pandemic that has turned everything somewhat upside down. 
but we are going to be discussing it from a developmental neuroscience perspective. Yeah, I'd like to welcome Dr. Carissa Cassio to the show today. Carissa is an associate professor at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. She's part of the Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences Department and focuses much of her research on sensory and repetitive disorders and autism spectrum disorder, which we will be calling ASD for the rest of the episode. The goal of her research is to build a better understanding of how basic sensory and limbic neural systems contribute to the complex array of social and communication impairments in ASD. She has several interesting ongoing studies, and we are so excited to be able to welcome her to the podcast today. So welcome, Dr. Cassio. How are you doing today? Thanks so much. Um, I'm doing great and really happy to be on with you. Awesome. So first of all, I want to just say how I came across Carissa and the paper we're going to be discussing today. So when Tolu and I decided that the month of October would be dedicated to developmental psychology, I sat down at my computer and I was wondering what we could talk about from a neuroscience standpoint. So as usual, I just went to my university database and I typed in developmental neuroscience. Then I began scrolling and the title Social Touch and Human Development stood out to me because as everyone knows, now with the pandemic, all it seems we're talking about is social distancing. And so any sort of social touch now could be frowned upon. So that's when I decided to check out the paper. And appropriately, the tote for today or term of the episode for today is social touch. So just to get everyone on the same page before we start, would you mind defining social touch for us, Carissa, and telling us a little bit about why it's so important for development? Sure. Um, so social touch is one of those things that can have multiple definitions depending on who you're talking to, but I'm going to define it um, in neurobiological terms first, because that's where the most, I would say, active research uh, is is ongoing. So we think about social touch in terms of a um, particular class of uh, afferent nerves. So these are nerves that carry information from the skin to the brain. And we, um, we know that certain types of touch feel more pleasant and rewarding than other kinds of touch. And it turns out that stroking touch that's gentle and kind of moving laterally across the skin at a particular speed um, with a particular force selectively recruits a particular kind of sensory afferent that's been really well studied called a CT afferent. We may talk about that later. Um, but because of that um, selective activation of that kind of afferent, um, social touch is often described in terms of its um, how well it matches those properties, whether it's slow, stroking, um, and gentle. And so that's kind of how we operationalize from the neurobiological side what social touch is. Okay. Um, so before we get into the fibers and the nerves, I wanted to clarify some things from the paper so that the listeners that don't have a neuroscience background can follow along too. So First, I feel like it would be important to define what affect is. Just um, would you say like this is a state of feeling? Yes, I um, we we often use affect as sort of a broad term to encompass emotion and feelings. Um, there are some differences between emotions and feelings, but I think for our purposes, we can think of affective as kind of encompassing both. Okay, so 
I know that you can have like positive affect, negative affect. So what does this mean essentially in terms of feeling? Um, yeah, so these are these are terms that are kind of linked in with the limbic system. And positive affect is um, what pleasant or happy emotions. So you know, feeling happy, feeling calm. Um, negative affect would be things like fear or anxiety, um, things like that that are generally perceived as um, as unpleasant. Okay. So in the paper, when defining social touch, you distinguish between bottom-up and top-down. And so for me, um, when I think of bottom-up processes, I think of outside-in in a way. So in this case, we're talking about social touch from others or with others that are mediated by CT fibers. Like, Would this be accurate to say? Yeah, I think that is accurate. The way we conceptualize this top-down and bottom-up distinction in the paper was bottom-up being, as you said, mediated by some um, external stimulus to the nervous system um, where we can really characterize its pathway through the nervous system into the brain. And top-down is being more um, what how our brains with their previous experiences and learning contextualize that input and what our um, uh, incoming biases kind of in coming into the situation, the biases and memories and other associations that we have with touch um, colors, how we perceive that. Okay. So the paper also focuses on two factors that could influence your interpretation of touch. And the first factor concerns like who, so like, who the partner is that is touching you. And then I believe the second one is why. So why are these important factors to look into? Yeah, so these are top-down factors, and they really tell us a lot about how our brain is going to interpret those signals that are coming in from the skin. So there's a lot of research out there that suggests that if I touch you on the shoulder um, and I'm in a position of power over you, um, that that means something very different than if I'm uh, not in a position of power over you or we have some other kind of relationship. Um, there's interesting research suggesting that um, touches uh, from servers in restaurants, which of course, you know, we're not utilizing as much as we, we used to be, but um, that can increase the patron's likelihood to tip. Um, oh. and so, yeah, so there's kind of um, just a lot of interesting top-down context that your brain will sort of give to a touch to make it mean different things, even though the signal from coming from your skin is e exactly the same. Wow. That's pretty interesting. I did not <laughs> know that. <laughs> yeah, there's, uh, there's distinctions between, uh, you know, whether, whether that, um, that can vary according to gender or, um, other factors, um, mm -hmm. in that relationship. But yeah, the context of your relationship, um, does a lot to color the, the perception of touch. Okay. Yeah. I was going to say, Tobe and I were talking about that earlier before you joined in on the call and we were talking about how if you're ready to like, anticipating a touch maybe it's more acceptable if it's consensual than if you're like not accepting it expecting it and then all of a sudden you just feel somebody touching you and it yeah <laughs> definitely effect. um i also wanted to expand on the now more of the sensory part 
I took this course in my third year at university called Sensory Motor Systems. And I was actually thinking of talking about one of those papers for the episode. It was a study where they raised kittens in complete darkness their whole lives. And then they compared the neurodevelopment to a control group. It was when I read the paper, I was like, holy, imagine like how ethical this is. And they saw that they were quite obviously some differences, especially in areas dedicated to multisensory integration. Anyhow, we also talked about the various receptors in the skin and what they do, and we reviewed various different afferent axon types. So for the listeners out there that don't know what afferent means, afferent means incoming. So we have all these different receptors called A- a beta, A delta, and C fibers. And based on the paper, the C fibers are the important ones, also known as C touch fibers. They're for pain, temperature, and itch. Interestingly, they are also unmyelinated. So they're very thin, but they're also very slow at relaying information. What's so significant and interesting about these aspects of the CT fibers? Yeah, so they are, they kind of came as a surprise in humans in terms of their ability to carry non painful touch signals. So for a long time, we thought that unmyelinated, slowly conducting nerve fibers, like you described, really only conveyed pain, temperature, itch, those kinds of things, which are emotional uh, sensory signals, um, but aren't necessarily. Um, aren't necessarily what we would classify as touch. They're, they're, they're not innocuous, so they have this painful, emotional, negative association with them. Um, <clears throat> and then it was discovered relatively recently in the, the context of sensory neuroscience uh, that humans and um, some of our uh, non-human primate cousins have these afferents um, innervating the skin that respond selectively to positive emotional touch. So not just negative things like pain and itch, um, but this pleasant stroking affiliative kind of touch. And these unmyelinated C fibers are um, the same class as the fibers that carry information from the inside of your body. So um, information about your organs, um, how they're functioning, which tells your brain a lot about your autonomic state. Um, and that's linked to your emotions. And so there's this connection here between the C fibers, um, and our brain system for evaluating emotions, um, that people started to pay attention to more in research. Cool. So it, it would be connecting to more of like the limbic system that, right? Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. So the limbic system is kind of driven or um, kind of reciprocally drives your autonomic nervous system that prepares your body to make changes um, based on the emotional value of a stimulus or a situation that you're in. Um, and so these, these fibers seem to be an integral part of that. Cool. And I read that some of them project to the insula, which is part of the limbic system, uh, rather than the primary somatosensory cortex. Is there any significance about the insula particularly that would be interesting? Yeah, so the insula is probably my favorite brain region. Um, and it's got a it's got an interesting 
array of functions. So the C fibers project to the most posterior part of it, um, closest to the back of the brain. And that is, um, in addition to receiving this social touch in input, also the source of, or the target for um, interceptive input. So if you have um, a racing heart or you're, you start to breathe faster um, or other things in, in your body start to signal that something is, has changed and that your brain needs to react to it, the posterior insula is the first place that those signals go. And so the fact that these touch fibers also project there as their primary um, spot in the cortex just kind of further underscores this link between the positive and negative emotional aspects of these things. Um, then as you get further anterior in the insula, closer to the front of the brain, um, those signals start to be integrated more with uh, your more top-down ways of uh, perceiving and characterizing your emotional reactions. So the insula seems to be a site where we're getting a lot of sensory input about the state of the body and integrating that to decide what it means, uh, how we feel about it, and then ultimately how we'll respond. Awesome. So I guess the posterior part of the insula would be more automatic and then maybe the anterior part, there's more control over it in terms of um, consciously deciding whether how to react to it. Is that yeah, I think that's a pretty fair characterization. The anterior part of the insula is really heavily connected with the cingulate cortex and other parts of the brain that seem to be a system for deciding what is important in the environment to, to pay attention to and switching our attention. Um, so I th that's what's known as the salience network. And we think that some of that more basic input that's coming in through the posterior side gets propagated to the anterior side to help us decide what is salient and what we need to attend to. Cool. All right. Moving on from that, um, based on the fact that touch is important to bonding and that there's been research that shows social, social touch increases new opioid receptor availability, and also that blocking these receptors with a drug like naloxone can cause primates to show a sort of increased enjoyment of touch. What kind of parallels do you think we can draw from this information to help us understand human interaction, socialization, and development? Yeah, that's a that's a big question. Um, so we've thought about this most from the perspective of uh, infant development. So we know that infants are getting a lot of input, especially in relative terms, from their sense of touch in general and this system um, specifically relative to some other sensory modalities that are less developed at birth. So you know, our visual systems are still doing a lot of developing. Um, and so we, we get uh, a lot of cues that we think are pretty formative in uh, in establishing the reward value of human interaction through this system early on in infancy. Um, and the fact that it's tied to these systems for the state of the body and internal regulation um, kind of just underscore the the importance of setting up those associations. So if I'm an infant, um, you know, essentially my primary concerns are, you know, I'm hungry, I'm uncomfortable, I'm cold, all these things about the state of my body. Um, and when I communicate those needs, um, most 
the the first set of inputs that I have are through touch. So I'm picked up, I'm held, I'm rocked, um, I'm fed, and all of that is just providing massive inputs into this tactile system, this CT system. Um, and I should say other, other somatic oriented systems as well. So the CT afferents are really particular for this slow stroking touch. But if you watch mothers with infants, um, they do a lot of tapping. They do a lot of rocking and swinging to activate the vestibular system. Um, so there's all this, all this sensory input that is associated with, um, discomfort being alleviated. So um, mom picks me up and now I'm fed and now I'm warm and now I'm being rocked to sleep. And so what we suspect is that that sensory input is really important for forming the, the basis for social reward. We know that um, over time, those infants will learn to associate mom and the touch of mom or dad um, to with that, that relief um, and pleasantness and that forms a foundation for us finding uh, contact with other people enjoyable and rewarding. That's actually really interesting. I'm going to have to make my mom listen to this episode. <laughs> All right. So earlier, Tolu mentioned that with social touch, we look at the who, as in who is delivering the touch, and the why, why they're engaging in tactile stimulation. In the review, you mentioned that with romantic touch, oxytocin can actually increase the response of reward pathways with touch. But the opposite is seen in people with subclinical autism traits. Why do you think there's different roles and why might this be happening? Yeah, that's a great question. So we we do think that oxytocin is involved particularly in the types of touch that are important for survival. So that includes romantic touch and uh, parent, uh, parent infant touch. And those are kind of two forms of touch that are critical for us to um, find rewarding in order to um, survive and succeed in an evolutionary sense. And what we get, we know that there are differences in the oxytocin system in autism um, to the extent that we're now um, you know, looking at clinical trials to, as uh, um, uh, for oxytocin-related drugs to try to mediate some of the social deficits we see in autism. Um, but we, it's a. Um, I think oxytocin is sort of a. It's a very. It mediates very primal sort of um, touch associations and reward reward with touch, and so um, we know that for people with autism that the, the those things are happening the way they normally would. Um, so, you know, parents uh, with autism uh, are able to bond with their babies. But we wonder if there might be something in people with autism um, that that affects their sort of perceived reward of touch um, that just makes it um, less less inherently rewarding uh, um, compared to people without autism. So that's really speculative at this point. We don't know yet um, exactly how oxytocin is interacting with, um, with these systems in autism, but that's a, that's a, it's a theory. Um, yeah, I think I'll probably just stop there and just say that we're, we, it's still kind of an area of active investigation, but we think that sort of the reward re related to that kind of um, 
evolutionarily meaningful touch just may be different in people with autism. Yes, for, for sure. There's a lot of gray areas when we're figuring out things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so with the clinical trials that you mentioned, are they adding oxytocin to see if that helped or... So there are trials that are that are looking at oxytocin agonists, and then there's also um, a related compound that's released um, from the hypothalamus, um, vasopressin, which is sort of a, um, a thought to mediate more um, kind of uh, aggressive and less less social affiliative behavior and more. Um, more aggressive types of behavior. And so um, antagonizing vasopressin and agonizing oxytocin are both um, ongoing clinical trials investigations right now. So one thing that interested me was that there was a hyper-responsiveness and a hypo-responsiveness going on in children with autism as a response to touch. Mm-hmm. And even more interesting, like the hyper-responsiveness, which is shown in like defensive reactions to touch, was more severe with when areas with CT fibers were touched. So that was like the, the face and the arm. Mm-hmm. And it got me thinking that with COVID, the areas that we are told not to touch and specifically are those, are those areas. And like, although with physical distance, distancing that means like don't touch people at all usually like if you see a friend or a partner you would go for those ct innervated areas right like covid has kind of put a a stop to that like do you think there would be any future problems that arise from that yeah so that's it's a really great question and i think there are people who are actively investigating this now with covid because you're right there's um there's a whole bunch of typical affiliative touch that we use with um, people we're familiar with that is um, that is just not okay anymore, um, including something as casual as a handshake, um, which, you know, used to be kind of a staple of <laughs> social interactions with people you were just getting to know. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as you progress kind of further into concentric circles of intimacy, um, you know, obviously there's more and more of that um, contact that we're just now discouraged uh, for very good public health reasons from engaging in. Um, but we do think that there's, um, you know, the kind of maintenance of our social reward um, and kind of the maintenance of those close social relationships really is um it is mediated in part by being able to experience the rewarding effects of that touch. And so I think it just, um, it is probably a challenging time for, um, for lots of reasons, but, um, but this is, this is added to the list of reasons why this uh, pandemic is, is putting people under added stress and, um, and difficulty. Yeah, definitely. Before everything shut down, I was actually at a networking convention and it was back in March, but it was a couple of weeks before we went into lockdown. And so everyone was kind of wary and the organizers told us, don't shake hands, don't come close to anyone. And so meeting people that way, it looked like we all just felt kind of awkward because we'd introduce ourselves and then we just like stand back from each other. Right. Yeah. Usually the handshake, it would be like a connection and, then you go into your conversation from there. But then there was that awkward pause of, oh, hi, nice to meet you. And nothing happens in between. 
I also know at the ICU at SickKids in Toronto, there are volunteers that just hold the babies and it helps them increase their birth weight, which improves their overall health. But with COVID-19, I'm sure most of these programs have been shut down. Do you think things like this could be influencing treatments and therapies for especially children with developmental issues too, um, that might be affected with therapy options during the pandemic? Yeah, I think that is going to be one of the really unfortunate side effects of the, again, very necessary precautions that healthcare providers are having to take in terms of contact, physical contact with patients or clients. Um, I think that there's your, your example of NICU infants is a really good one. And I don't know how NICUs um, are handling all of this, but we know that 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 human contact is so critical for their um, continued growth and development and um, ability to regulate. Um, and so it's, um, it's, it's very, it's very troubling to think about all the potential benefit that's, um, that we're not able to, to give right now. Mm. Um, I think on the topic of, of, uh, I guess, side effects of the pandemic. I think along with improving birth weight, a study mentioned in your paper also said that hand-holding by romantic partners resulted in pain relief. And like my mind immediately went to two different places. Mm -hmm. So the first place was women in labor who were separated from their partners because they weren't allowed in the room. Mm -hmm. And so like, you know, maybe a nurse could lend a hand, but it's not the same as having your partner in the room. And then... My sec- the second place my mind went to was like patients suffering from illnesses not related to COVID-19 and also related um, who couldn't have family in the room as they were about to pass on or something, you know. Yeah. So they're going through another form of pain and relief in the form of social touch is missing and not allowed because of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, I think those are both really great examples of, of things that are just just really, really difficult. And, you know, particularly the latter example where, you you know, I I know that providers are doing their absolute best to try to connect those patients with their family members through their phones or through a tablet Mm -hmm. or, you know, something like that. And certainly that, that would help. Um, But there is really no substitute for the the warm touch of a loved one, um, particularly when you're very, very ill. On that note, in the paper, you also mentioned um, vicarious touch and mediated touch. So when someone is observing social touch, they have a similar response to if they're actually the recipient over a long distance. So with COVID-19, I'm interested to hear just your thoughts on if you think maybe virtual reality or watching TV where people interact socially could effectively replace the lack of social touch. Do you think maybe the development of these touch exchanging devices could increase during the pandemic or any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that that's, it's a very interesting area of active exploration right now. How much can we in a virtual setting replace some of these things? And I think that while there is a very um, fascinating analog to the mirror neuron system for touch in our brains that uh, we do show 
um, some recruitment of some brain areas when we're watching touch um, that are really similar to what they would be when we're experiencing touch. I wouldn't say that it's a complete recreation of even sort of the neural um, the neural responses. So I think that we see a lot of those um, uh, responses at the level of the cortex, but probably see fewer of those at some of the more limbic and brainstem levels where um, we know that it's probably interacting more directly with autonomic nervous system. So I think that there's certainly a lot of promise in trying to expand how we can um, how we can engage in the the tactile realm without physical presence. But I would say that I'd, I wouldn't expect it to ever be, um, you know, as something we could use as a substitute in, in every sense of the word. Yeah. Hopefully we don't have to. Yeah. Hopefully not. <laughs> I know for sure it would be helpful for those in long distance relationships. I mean, physical touch is one of the love languages. Yeah. Yeah. If there is one thing as we close up, if there's one thing that listeners should take away from the review paper that you wrote with your colleagues, uh, what do you think it would be, Teresa? Oh, um, well, I guess just that this is, a really complicated thing that has a lot of um, just a lot of facets to it. And I would say that we, you know, we're learning a lot about the biology um, of how we, the brain receives these signals um, from the skin and why they're so important to our emotions. Um, and we're we're still learning a lot about the more top down side of it, how your brain contextualizes that input and interprets it based on your previous experiences. So we think that um, I guess probably one of the biggest takeaways is that both of those things are interacting over the course of the developmental span of a human life to, um, to create some complex patterns um, in terms of how we interpret and respond to social touch. So I guess that would be the sort of the, the takeaway from that paper. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thank you so much for coming on, Carissa. Um, welcome. I think it's been, I think it's so important to be vigilant when it comes to things that are affecting us right now. So it's better to plan for the future and know what the effects might be than to look back and say like, wow, that sucked. We could have done more. (laughs) Um, But I think now people will know how important social touch is and incorporate that the best they can into their day in a way that is safe since we are still in like going through a pandemic. Um, But yes, thank you again for coming on and sharing some knowledge with us. As always, it's time for the email prompt. You can let us know how you felt about this episode by emailing us. It's thebraincorepodcast at gmail.com or messaging us on Instagram or Twitter. That's always in the bio. Um, How has the pandemic affected you? Has it affected you significantly? Um, How have you dealt with it personally? Uh, You can also rate the episode on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment to help us build our audience. The link for the paper we just discussed will be in the bio, so if you'd like to check it out, you can. Um, The link for the background music will also be there. Uh, Thank you for listening. We hope October has started well for you and that you are having a great brain day.